Hey everyone, it's Lucas and Anita. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. All right, so this was a pretty busy week, lots of legal stuff, lots of doom and gloom, but Team TechCrunch, we had some other stuff that we were working on. What are we up to, Anita? Yeah, we're actually looking forward to this a lot. We're having a one-day crypto event on November 17th in Miami. I'm super excited to go. And we're going to be announcing speakers soon. You know, we've been planning for this and putting together some panels, some fireside chats, and some other fun stuff for you all. But if you want more information, you want to stay updated, or if you want to snag an early discounted ticket, you can go to the link that we're going to be tossing in our show notes to sign up. We are super excited, and we hope to see you all there. Yes, this is your opportunity to see Anita and I in action grilling guests on the main stage. But <laughs> something like that. Yeah. 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 Some, something, something like that. Well, jumping into some of the news this week, there's some some chaos brought about by some SEC DOJ action with Coinbase. What was going on there? Yeah, we love to hear about some regulatory drama. You know, it's always juicy, but uh, this week's is particularly big. And I think we're going to have to spend a little time talking about this one because it's super important for the entire crypto industry. Coinbase is under some legal heat. So last week, a Coinbase employee and two other people, one of these people was his brother, were actually arrested and they were charged with wire fraud because they were allegedly front running token trades where they knew it was going to be listed on the platform. This guy was allegedly calling up his brother and his friend and saying, hey, guys, buy, buy the token. And so that investigation was led by the DOJ. All three were arrested. And what was really interesting about this is afterwards, the three people were also hit with charges that they had committed securities fraud. And that came from the SEC, which essentially means that the SEC was looking at some of the cryptocurrencies that they had been trading as securities, which, as you guys might know, has huge, huge implications. When you're selling something that's a security versus selling something that's not a security, you have to make all of these disclosures, you have to be compliant with all of these different laws and rules. So it's, it's really a big deal if they were indeed selling securities without registering them properly. And so we got a little more context on this situation this week because Bloomberg reported that the SEC had actually already been investigating Coinbase itself, like before this whole arrest thing happened, for allowing securities to trade on its platform. And so this just goes to show, you know, this is a really big moment of scrutiny. And Coinbase, for its part, is sort of adamantly insisting, you know, we do not sell securities on the platform. And, you know, we vet every single thing that's listed on our platform before it goes on to make sure it's not a security. But he didn't really explain the details as to why they think that or their justification. He just sort of said like, no, no, guys, like trust us, we've checked. Yeah. And so like the whole listing process, initially Coinbase was really slow to list new tokens. They had Bitcoin, they had Ethereum, they had a couple others, but it was a huge deal every time they listed a new token for the first few years of the company. In the past like few months as the bull run was going crazy, they were just getting them out the door as quick as they could. Got a little loose with the the standards. And and if you look at what the ones the SEC was calling out, these things don't do anything. They're all useless. And like, (laughs) I actually hadn't heard of most of them. It's uh, uh, like AMP, Rally, Power Ledger, LCX. I went to all the websites of all these and it's hilarious how many clicks I had to go through on every one of their websites to have any idea what any of them did. So (laughs) when when Coinbase is like, we vetted these to the highest degree, I'm kind (laughs) of like, all right, okay. Right, right. I mean, look, all of them are actually like built on Ethereum. So they're sort of layer two uh, tokens that are built on the Ethereum network. And like I said, I, I hadn't heard of any of them, but Coinbase is actually not the only exchange that's being investigated for this. And I think this is why the fact that they're even being investigated by the SEC is such a huge deal. There's other names facing some legal action over this. So Binance is currently under investigation by the SEC for its BNB token that it sold in 2017. 
which allegedly they think was a security, the SEC thinks, and Ripple, which is another big token issuer, has been in this ongoing legal battle with the SEC over its XRP token. That's been a very high profile fight. A lot of insistence on both sides. And those are actually the fifth and sixth largest tokens right now by market cap, at least as of a couple of weeks ago. And so those are huge, huge exchanges and huge tokens. So it's not just the shit coins being affected. There's also a number of class action lawsuits that people are filing to sort of nail crypto companies on this rule. You know, from what I've read, it seems like the class action lawsuits are less likely to be successful because it's not coming directly from the SEC. But there is a lawsuit against Binance for selling its Terra token, not its Terra token, but the Terra token that you all have heard of. <laughs> There's another one against Yuga Labs for selling its Bored Ape NFTs and its ApeCoin token. So it just goes to show like a lot of eyes are on the crypto industry right now. And the definition of what actually is a security is going to be really important. Yeah, there have been so many years of time for this lawsuit to come through. I think the fact that it's coming through now when there have been all these high profile like lending entities failing, like a lot of retail investors, anyone who held through the last couple of years is probably down bad. Like it's a pretty popular time to be like pushing some hefty regulation. To sue because you're salty that you exactly. lost money. <laughs> and like none of the retail investors in Coinbase are like feeling too good about themselves. The stock is, as we've said every week, down, 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 down. <laughs> so yeah, the, it's, it's an interesting time. But like, as you said, deciding what a security is isn't the most straightforward thing. Yeah, so I took a look into this and I was just interested to see, you know, what is the argument one way or another? And there's this test called the Howey test. It's a four-part test that the Supreme Court basically came up with to decide whether something is a security or not. So I'll read you the four parts really quick. A transaction qualifies as an offering of securities if it involves one, an investment of money, two, in a common enterprise, three, with a reasonable expectation of profit, and this is the key one, four, to be derived by the efforts of others. So essentially the implications of this definition means that any crypto that is acting like a substitute for fiat currency is safe. It's okay. It doesn't really meet that test. So it's not classified as a security. So that's why we haven't seen any action against like, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum itself, because you're just using that to transact. But a lot of the tokens that were actually listed in the SEC lawsuit, the nine tokens, they do a lot more than, uh, or they claim to do a lot more than just be uh, mechanisms for a transaction like fiat. One of them is Rally. They describe themselves on their website as your own social token that enables transactions, access, and more creative solutions for your economy. They're geared towards creators. Now, mm -hmm. I don't really know what that means, but I will say it sounds like they're trying to do a lot more than just be a medium of exchange. Uh, we've definitely covered Rally before on TechCrunch. And I think that like, yeah. it's kind of one of those things where a lot of the value is derived from the platform itself, which is kind of the fundamental problem with a lot of these things is like, fulfilling that last note of the Howey test, which is to be derived from the efforts of others. If it's clearly all coming from the centralized entity that like created the token, you know, that's the issue. I also love the Howey test because the Howey test is from like 1930s and originates <laughs> from some guy who was selling plots of land in an orange grove in Florida. Oh, wow. And like, this is what we're basing all of the, it like <laughs> our understandings <laughs> around that are what we're basing the future of the crypto economy in America on, which I, I know that's how it works with all of the laws, but it's, it's still fun. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely need, need some updates to uh, laws in the U S but I don't know. I think we're also <laughs> no, making yeah. the updates that we don't need, but that's a, that's a separate issue. Exactly. Yeah. But no, this is, this is going to be huge for crypto. And I think every single exchange is probably very scared right now as to exactly what the SEC is going to do because they want to be classified as commodities. You know, we've talked about this in prior shows with the new, well, it's not as new anymore, but the bill going through Congress right now that would regulate cryptocurrencies and they want to make the CFTC the main regulator. But I think in the meantime, you know, before that 
takes effect, the SEC is sort of swooping in, seizing the day and trying to get their wins while they can. This is kind of wild because, I mean, like at the end of the day, the last couple of years, it's been a very populist platform for any politician to have to be pro crypto. So as a result, it's like fairly bipartisan. There are a lot of Democrats and Republicans who like fundamentally say good things about crypto and the crypto industry. For the most part, it's been Elizabeth Warren, who has had some harsh words to say on DeFi and stable coins and stuff like that. And Gary Gensler, who is very positioned to like screw over these guys hardcore. So they're kind of unlucky in that capacity, I suppose. But if anyone was going to be pissed about it, I suppose it'd be the Securities and Exchange Commission. Right. It's kind of their job. But um, I guess <laughs> yes. it's definitely been a tough time for crypto. And I think that takes us nicely into uh, our next topic that we have here. Yes. So Elon Musk, hero and enemy of the crypto industry at various times, depending on who you ask. (laughs) At the beginning of 2021, Tesla made this huge Bitcoin buy. They bought a billion and a half dollars worth of Bitcoin at the time. I think average price was around like somewhere between 25 and 30 grand. So they got in, you know, before the highest highs. They bought all this Bitcoin and they also announced that you would soon be able to buy Teslas with Bitcoin. So this like sent Bitcoin through the roof and really started like a very sustained bull run. Yeah, to the moon, if you will. Yeah, to the moon. And it was it was like at this point he like became a crypto god. <laughs> he already had significant overlap between Tesla fanboys and crypto fanboys, but this really cemented it. Then a few months later, he has this mea culpa where he goes in and says, you know, actually Bitcoin energy usage is kind of bad and doesn't jive with the mission of Tesla. So we're not going to allow Bitcoin sales for Teslas anymore. But he was also like, we're still holding on to the Bitcoin. We haven't sold any. We'll make decisions on that later. Yada, yada, yada. Several quarters later, Bitcoin goes up and down. Tesla stock goes up and down. This past quarter, they just released their quarterly earnings this past week. And they noted that in the previous quarter, they sold 75% of their Bitcoin holdings, which they sold for about a billion dollars. What was the price they sold at, Lucas? Well, so it's a little unclear, but they didn't sell at the low. So they theoretically, like reportedly, they had around 40,000 something Bitcoins. So I think like conservatively judging that they sold 30,000, which I think is like pretty much what people think. If they sold 30,000 and they netted 960 million, yeah, 960 million, then they were somewhere above 30K. So it's not like they yeah, sold it. So they didn't 18. sell the absolute dip. Exactly. And if they sold it 30, it doesn't seem like they lost a ton of money, theoretically. So. Who knows? Yeah. They didn't disclose exact purchase prices. Everyone was kind of always guessing on their average price. But they sold all this Bitcoin. The crypto community responded negatively. They felt it was a very traitorous move by Ol' Muskie. They didn't enjoy it too much. They said, we should start shorting Tesla. Some of these people on crypto Twitter were like, it's time for revenge, basically. So wait a couple hours. Then on the (laughs) Tesla quarterly earnings call... Tesla's CFO says that they did this because China had these super intense COVID lockdowns this past quarter and they were kind of unclear when they were going to end and they were in a cash crunch because, you know, the China market is important to their overall revenues. And they sold the Bitcoin? They didn't sell so anything they else. The Bit- they sold the Bit- They had the audacity to sell the Bitcoin? I know, I know. It's, it's, <laughs> wow. They could have done anything, but they had to attack the crypto bro specifically. Yeah, so they, they do this. And, you know, whatever. This is obviously like, who knows what the real reason is or if this was. I don't trust, but that's my problem. <laughs> so they say this and then Elon butts into the CFO and says, yeah, but we haven't sold any of our Dogecoin. Oh. And it hadn't been disclosed that they own Dogecoin. They've been accepting purchases on the Tesla website in Dogecoin. But like, 
I, I really want to know it. if anyone's actually done that. Like even like well, one I'm individual. Sure, I'm sure some people, but it's got to be like thousands of dollars. But I looked at it. So they actually, they didn't disclose how much they own, but they disclosed how much digital assets, which was kind of assumed to be cryptocurrency that they own, which they own. They currently own $218 million worth of cryptocurrency. So if they measured that at the end of the last quarter, which is probably when they would have, based on some of the loose math on how many Bitcoins they have, they probably have around 200 million, 210 million worth of Bitcoin that's made up of that. So they're still holding on to potentially millions of dollars worth of Dogecoin, which is like (laughs) something. Right. And like, ultimately, like if you got 5 million and you're going to piss off a bunch of Dogecoin holders, I don't think anyone... uh, You might as well hold on to it. I, I guess. It's not like it's a billion dollars. Yeah, and, and Elon Musk and Dogecoin do have a long history. And I know he's being sued, right? We talked about that earlier on <laughs> in one of our episodes. By uh, Some disgruntled Dogecoin investor is suing him for like $268 million or billion. I, I, for having influence <laughs> yeah. over the price it, of Dogecoin. It's the billion. It's $268 billion. Yeah, it, it's, it's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, the most absurd thing about this to me is just like Elon Musk has been in the news for so much crazy stuff in the past couple of weeks. It feels like every single day I wake up and I get like a push notification telling me who else Elon Musk has a kid with. And I'm like, oh, wow. okay. But but no, like none of that really mattered to the crypto community. This is what was Mm -hmm. the the, the last straw for them. Like this was the thing was him selling Bitcoin that really pissed him off. So it's been some bad PR times. I mean, like, Frankly, the Twitter deal probably pissed off some of his community a little bit if they were like, you know, they bought in right away because they're like, oh, now we believe in Twitter. And then all of a sudden they watched the stock price slide because he pulled out of the deal. And right. It's like, oh, can we not trust you? Well, and to be clear, when I say crypto community, I mean like the Elon Musk stands, like the hardcore ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tough times for richest man in the world. I, I, well, pray, let's Aww. thoughts and prayers for Elon this week. Sending thoughts and prayers for sure. <laughs> On the note of crypto getting a little wrecked this week, as it has been, we did look into the story that our colleague Amanda wrote about Minecraft banning NFTs from their platform. What's up with that? Yes. So Minecraft, it's this game that has a ton of people on it. It's always monetized itself by people actually having to pay for the full game, which is interesting. Like all these other companies have done free to play. They've done battle passes. They've done loot boxes. Minecraft still has like their own little in-game currency and stuff. But like for the most part, they've monetized themselves in a pretty like web, you know, 1.5 kind of way, it feels like. So this week they announced that they were banning NFTs from the platform. There were a couple little like community platforms that were basically building on top of Minecraft and like introducing token gated communities and having tokens in them. And Minecraft basically said, we don't want that on our platform anymore. And they had some like fairly harsh words. Right. So the entity that develops Minecraft wrote, NFTs are not inclusive of all our community and create a scenario of the haves and have nots. The speculative pricing and investment mentality around NFTs takes the focus away from playing the game and encourages profiteering, which we think is inconsistent with the long term joy and success of our players. I like that they're thinking about that. I think that's really important. It's really nice. You know, as a former Neopets player, I remember being pretty pissed off when they decided that you you have to pay money to get Neopoints. You know, that Mm -hmm. ruined my life as a 10 year old. And so I'm here for, you know, not taking the joy out of games by making profits off of them. But at the same time, it sounds like Minecraft is already sort of doing that. Well, it's like 
it's kind of metaverse, whatever vibes, but it's the vibes of like, we don't like that people are profiteering off our gamers. That's our job is like kind of how <laughs> yeah. I read this in some yeah. capacity where it's just like, all right, let's not get all high and mighty. You're still looking at your bottom line and being like, okay, well, if they're spending money with these third party developers, maybe this is less money that they're putting into mine coins or something like that. So like, you know, I'm not going to like game publishers all act in their best interest. If they could introduce NFT seamlessly and they feel like they wouldn't get wrecked, they would have. I don't trust them. They made a stance and is it the most daring time to make a stance when crypto has crashed, NFT sales are down and we're at the front end of a bear market? I don't think so, but they made the choice to do it regardless. They might change their yeah. mind, which I thought was interesting. It sounds like a lot of the games that are built on top of Minecraft, including this one called NFT Worlds, which is built on Polygon, they've built some play to earn games on top of the Minecraft open source code, and they're trying to fight this decision. So it'll be interesting to see if Minecraft reverses or changes course, if prices go back up again at some point. Man, this is such a, <laughs> there's sometimes when like a overarching platform makes a decision that affects like a third party developer. And you're just like, huh, wonder how they're going to work their way out of this one. This is one of those situations where I'm like, damn, NFT world sounds screwed. Like, what are they going to do? And they proposed a couple platforms, but they just to sound incredibly like, nearly impossible to pull off. Yeah. And crypto gaming in general is kind of taking a hit this month. And it's been taking a hit just like all the other sectors of crypto. Some news that I saw earlier this week was that Immutable Games let 6% of its staff go. They didn't have a huge mm. staff. It was a couple hundred people, but um, they are still planning to hire, which is interesting. They got a $2.5 billion valuation after raising $200 million in their funding round in March. So it sounds like it's not just pure layoffs, but it's more of a pivot and strategy. And I think, you know, my take on this is just there are a lot of crypto gaming companies that are coming to this sort of moment where they're realizing their games actually have to be fun to play. And it can't just be yeah. about monetization. You know, it can't just be about like earning money. Like we all do that at work every day. <laughs> it's not really like what I'm looking for out of a video game. It's funny also because I feel like a lot of hardcore crypto believers ultimately believe it's like, are people going to get into crypto because of DeFi? That's a very small subset. I think most people think that like the Trojan horse of crypto mainstream adoption will be gaming and you can already like bet on the fake stock market in Grand Theft Auto. What you can if, do it in Neopets know, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. You That's can, where I came up. <laughs> yeah, they're just, you know, you can do any of these things, but like I feel like even in a bear market, people have some faith that like crypto gaming could still catch on just because it's so obfuscated from the rest of the market and you're not looking at Coinbase to track the token prices or something like this still could take off. But like for the time being, none of these games were fun. So they're all failing now. And that's just like a necessary part of the life cycle. Like you have to build a fun game. It's a game. <laughs> no kidding. This week, we talked to David Nage. Nage is a portfolio manager at Arca, a digital asset management firm, where he invests in early stage blockchain startups. David, it's great to have you on. It's great to be with you. Well, it's been kind of an interesting few months for crypto and your fund is fairly new. I guess I'm curious, how are you feeling as you see all of this wreckage around? Surely you've been in the space a while, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a daunting time. I would say... You're absolutely correct with that. I always like to reference historical events that have happened in you know the past. I'm of an age, thankfully, I've heard that I don't look it, but <laughs> I lived through the dot-com bubble. I've lived through Lehman and Bear crisis. I've seen what have happened you know, before that and obviously what happened after that. And what I've seen, especially with digital assets, is I've been around you know roughly about six years now. I saw, quote-unquote, crypto winter in 2018. And I saw 
how that evolved. And effectively, how that evolved, just to kind of go back in time, if you will, is Bitcoin was predominantly the only show in town from a kind of a macro landscape, if you will. You know, people started to get drawn into Bitcoin, you know, towards the middle part of 2017. You started to see at the end of 2017, it rise to its all-time high. And then in 2018, the price started to fall. And those that had just entered into the space via via Bitcoin didn't really understand what they were allocating to. They didn't understand what they were holding. They really hadn't processed a thesis behind it. They hadn't processed a rationale behind it. And this is predominantly retail investors at the time as well. So Bitcoin's price fell precipitously. And all of a sudden, you had the proclaimed crypto winter. Mm-hmm. What happened during crypto winter in 2018 is some of the more formidable businesses in our space today raised their seed rounds. You had OpenSea raise their seed round. You had Fireblocks raise their seed round. These are now companies that are unicorns that are north of a billion dollar valuations. And they raised during this period of time. And so what we have seen time and time again, you know, vis-a-vis technology, if it's the dot-com bubble or it's now in, in digital assets, that times of price instability or price fluctuation don't really turn innovators off. And they actually see that there was a lot of interest. And we've seen this you know, since crypto winter through this last period of time over the last few months, that the interest from the developer community has been unparalleled. You've had hundreds and, and thousands of developers start to really flock into the world of digital assets and look at the technology stack and try to innovate and build. You know, as a VC, as you alluded to, you know, starting our fund about uh, nine or so months ago in October of 2021, what we've seen is just a tremendous amount of talent and experienced talent that has been to the show before, that has built something before, that has either been at a legacy Web.20, 2.0 company, they understand the pivots that are needed, they understand the difficulties of building businesses, And so this is a class of founders that we have never seen in this asset class before. I also think that it's a really interesting point in time because there are now more multi-billion dollar funds earmarking capital to digital assets and early stage digital asset founders than we have ever had in this asset class before. The number goes beyond just a hand count. It, it's you know probably well over a dozen or if not two dozen funds that now have more than a billion dollars marked for, uh, for investment in this space. Mm-hmm. So you have a founder class that is highly experienced you have capital that is on the sidelines. They waited over the last two or so months. You know, a lot of the VCs in our space, a lot of our peers have waited to see kind of what the quote unquote contagion was going to be. But there is a tremendous amount of capital there to support this new foundation of, of builders that are ready to build Web 3.0. So I guess what I'm wondering about is, are things really different this time around? It sounds like that's what you're getting at. But then, you know, we saw this huge issue with Terra. We saw Celsius. We saw all of this being linked to Three Arrows Capital, ultimately. And I'm wondering if, you know, I've heard a lot of people draw parallels between what's happening in crypto right now to the 2008 recession. Mm-hmm. Don't you think this is going to hurt a little more for, for crypto just based on how intertwined everything is these days? I think first and foremost, I, I have to say that for those participants in Celsius and Voyager and other centralized facilities, it is something that I'm very well aware that many investors, retail, especially some institutional, but mostly retail investors have had to deal with harm because of this. I unfortunately think that the actions that have happened over the last few months, while incredibly painful, 
they are a mark in time and history that will, you know, effectively be used to say, we'll never again. You know, these are the things that cannot happen. These are the things that lead to failures. And we saw that, you know, as you alluded to with Lehman and Bear back in 2008 and 2009, that you started to see the mixture of capital between proprietary trading and between obviously sell-side shops. You saw a lot of the walling that needed to happen through regulation. So that intermixing of capital is basically postponed and suspended. So I think that is really important that while billions, if not trillions of dollars were obviously eviscerated during 2008-9, and it was incredibly painful for the investors out there, especially for those that had wreckage in their 401ks, This, unfortunately, is a potential parallel to that. Those investors out there that were using centralized finance repositories like, like, as I said, Celsius and Voyager and BlockFi, et cetera, are experiencing that type of pain. I wish that we as a society would not have to learn through failure. But it appears yeah. that you know we as a society <laughs> really learn via, via failure, and that's mm-hmm. the way that we grow and we prosper. So I, I guess that leads me to the next question, which is how does crypto lending come back from this? And I mean, a lot of the action in 2008, you know, the aftermath and some of the fixing the problem came from regulators and came from lawmakers who mm-hmm. were cracking down on the financial services industry. Do you think that's what needs to happen yep. within crypto or is the solution somewhere else? I think it's a mixture. I think we've, as a firm, have always said that regulation is welcome. Uh, Sensible, good regulation that allows the innovation to continue on is encouraged here. We want the United States especially to be a leader, not a follower here. And so we've always thought that regulation, sensible regulation from those that actually took the time to understand the technology would be warranted and welcomed. I do think that what you're seeing is, and this is really interesting, for about a year and a half, I was a fairly staunch kind of detractor, if you will, or someone who did not like DeFi. DeFi was amazing back in the early parts of uh, 2020 into April and May. In in June and July of 2020, DeFi summer, quote unquote, and you started to see a lot of experimentation. You started to see AMMs, you started to see DEXs, you started to see a lot of the land borrow facilities and, and yield farming strategies. Lots of experimentation happened. Right. And then all of a sudden, after DeFi summer, it kind of just died. And everyone just basically went to different L1s, different chains, whether it's you know Solana or AVAX or to Near, and they started to build the same thing again and again and again. Replication. There was no innovation. Innovation died in DeFi. What has been really interesting to me over the last two and a half summit months with a lot of the DeFi issues is that DeFi has held up. DeFi is run by smart contracts. If you have a lend bar facility and it's you know being deployed you know strictly by smart contracts, that's it. There's no give or take. It's black or white. You took a, a lend bar facility. You have a smart contract that basically deploys it and is currently watching it with Oracle data coming into it. That's it. It's over. You know you you have a responsibility and it's going to be automatically algorithmically taken care of. I do think that regulation will you know, definitely be part of the next you know phase here as we get more clarity for CFI. But I think what has been really interesting, you know, especially as I said, for me, who was constantly looking as a venture investor for new you know DeFi innovation over the last nine plus months of running my fund, what has been really interesting to me is that DeFi through this last, you know, as I said, the last two and a half plus months 
has held up and has actually done quite well. I'm curious, and I know, you know, you're not a regulator and we're deep in the regulation conversation, but I'm curious whether you think that like the time window has passed for super crypto friendly regulation. The SEC probe they're talking about with Coinbase today. Mm-hmm. I know there is kind of the, the bill working its way through Congress on kind of classifying most crypto as commodities, but it kind of feels like we're at this point where like retail investors are getting hit hard by all these lending entities and now there's the stuff with Coinbase. Are you concerned? As you alluded to, not a regulator, not a lawyer. So yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously we rely on their take on what's happening there. But as a investor, as I said again, mm-hmm. you know, I think what is really useful is a way forward is is a path and is in patterns. We saw back a few years ago that Hinman, during his period of time with you know the SEC, basically said that Ethereum was at one point a, a security, was you mm-hmm. know, basically they did a sale. But through 2000, the end of 2015 to the time of his opinion paper, that it decentralized, that it became something that was not. So that started to carve a way forward for other projects to start to follow through that. They understood that hey, maybe there is actually a period of time. And I think Hester Paris has also said this too, is that there should be a window of time for about three years, give or take where a project, a company starts as more of a centralized entity, and then it eventually goes to a decentralized entity through validators and through an extension of operations. I do think that having that type of clarity Mm -hmm. and having that type of pattern is really helpful for the hundreds and thousands of founders out there who are looking to create these types of new models and these new businesses that give more of a distributed and decentralized ownership to those that are participating. Mm-hmm. You know, without that clarity, they're still trying to figure it out. And I think this has really been emblematic with the type of the kind of the structure of deals that we've seen from venture over the last four to five months that have started to become more of the type of precedent. Back in 2021, you saw the predominance of deals that were being done as SAFs. There were equity deals, obviously, for CFI and for infrastructure, but a lot of the deals were SaaS, simple mm-hmm. agreements for future tokens. What you've seen now, especially with the turbulence in the market, you know, dating back to the middle of December until now, is that the majority of deals are now safes plus warrants. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these founders understand that a token you know, could provide, obviously, utility for distributing, decentralizing the authority of the, the company and could provide a lot of positive economic incentive for those that are participating. But without regulatory clarity, they are pushing that off in a warrant for an indefinite period of time. Mm -hmm. So again, I think that actually having that clarity could be really useful for the thousands of founders out there that are looking to innovate in the space. It's fairly interesting at the moment because I like, you know, not to rag on Coinbase too much, but when some of these token drops that they're talking about and a lot of like the SEC DOJ filings are around, when some of these drops came out, a lot of people in the crypto space were like, is this like Coinbase's cash grab? Because it was kind of hard to tell what some of these tokens even did. And if you go to the website of some of the tokens that the SEC specifically called out, I had to look for like minutes to even get a vague idea of what they did. So it's, you know, I, I like in one hand, it's them kind of finally taking the stance, perhaps. But on the other hand, they're taking a fairly narrow purview. It, it seems there were plenty of tokens that they didn't classify securities in this drop. So, I, you know, they made this big step, but it's also like clearly still early innings. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think what we've seen is the education gap of those that are regulators or those that are policymakers mm-hmm. to even fathom senators <laughs> writing 
proposals and policy, like you know Senator Luminous and others. That there, Senator Toomey has also been involved. There's a new one that just came out today. I see that I think Senator Toomey and others are responsible for that would effectively look to change the taxation of a Bitcoin transaction for anything mm-hmm. that was below fifty dollars worth of value to not really have to go through the taxation kind of regimen. To think this time, as I said again, in crypto winter in 2018, to think that senators would be architecting certain policy regarding digital assets is just a leap and bound and and kind of your mind just blows. It's amazing. The senator we sell ads crew coming up with crypto regulation. Yeah, is is a sight to be seen. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. But, you know, kind of on that topic, you talked a lot about CFI versus DeFi. And I want to dig into that distinction a little bit more. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't really necessarily understand. And even now are still trying to unpack with a lot of these collapses of different crypto lenders and exchanges, which ones of these are centralized versus not. And so my question is just, it sounds like you you said DeFi has held up and you as a venture investor um, believe in that. And so what I'm trying to understand and wrap my head around is as a venture investor in a DeFi protocol, how is it that it is still decentralized? Because necessarily, if you're taking an investment in that protocol, isn't there some sort of concentration of power? Well, the majority of those are being the protocol itself. And, you know, something like Uniswap, obviously, you know, for instance, if we use Uniswap, Uniswap has the Uni token. And that is a token that is used for governance and for the improvements uh, in the future of, of said protocol. And so those protocols are effectively run by smart contracts and by validators that are effectively approving or obviously not approving those transactions. Right. right. I, I guess what I'm saying is someone is holding a majority or you know large portions of those tokens, right? That has been subject to obviously some of the criticism that back in the first cohort of DeFi, whether it's Aave, whether that's Compound, whether that's, as I said, Uniswap, et cetera, that some of the larger VCs out there have been the larger holders of those. Right. I do think that actually, as a venture investor, this is probably going to be surprising. I agree with that. I think that criticism actually is meritorious. I think actually that some of these DeFi platforms need to be further distributed. I think that in the future, there needs to be mechanisms in place where one VC does not control more than X percentage of the actual token allocation. I think that is actually emeritus. I, I believe in that. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that we question when we see a new project is we constantly look at the token distribution. What is the allocation program here? How much is going to the community and to those that are actually doing the validation, doing the work of the network? How much is going to investors and who is on the cap table of, of that project? How much do those investors potentially hold? I think for the future, I think that that is actually, that criticism actually holds up. And I think that that's something that to get DeFi and to get this world even healthier, I think that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I want to ask from your perspective as a venture investor, what are the sorts of opportunities you're looking at right now? I know, Arca, you've made around 30 investments so far. Are there any spaces other than DeFi that you mentioned that you're really focused on? A large percentage of our time for the first half of the fund's life has been spent on the infrastructure of NFTs, not specifically the NFTs themselves, but the infrastructure behind NFTs and gaming. I've thought very hard about gaming as a gamer myself. I also have kids that play games every single day. 
gaming is something that for the last 50 years, you know, people have said, is gaming recession proof? It's not, in my opinion, recession proof, but it is resilient. Why is it resilient? Because gaming is supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be a <laughs> kind of a removal from sure. the, the day-to-day grind that you have. And so it's supposed to be a way to kind of get outside of your mind, get outside of the troubles that you may be having in life and to kind of just have some fun for a little while. And so gaming has gone from Pong, you know, in 1972 to obviously the times that we have now with Fortnite and Call of Duty and everything else that we have. We have over 3 billion gamers in the world. It's been, you know, our thesis that... While we've seen the evolution of quote-unquote blockchain gaming from the early days of 2011 and 12 with things like Gambit to the early days of CryptoKitties in 2017 to the introduction of Axie Infinity in 2018, we've seen through and throughout that there has been you know evolutions, there has been failures. And again, unfortunately, failures lead to learnings and learnings lead to further innovation. Gaming for us is still something that we're very interested in, something that we're really positive on. So we're going to continue to do that. We're continuing to look at that as a resource and a place where we're going to make allocations. NFT infrastructure is also really interesting. One of the the most recent investments that we made was effectively the Canva of NFTs. Basically, this idea of NFTs, whether it's gaming assets or other, There has not been a platform really out there that allows the creator to effectively create their NFTs, be able to purpose them for specific blockchains. Interoperability is a very big part of the story of what NFTs can be in the future, whether it's a gaming asset going from a Solana-based game to an Ethereum-based game to an Avalanche-based game. That interoperability feature has been remiss, hasn't really been there yet. So we think that as the future of gaming evolves with this new infrastructure that we see in place... We think that this interoperability feature is going to be really important, and this company is actually producing that platform to do that. Beyond gaming and NFT infrastructure, we also think that the world of quote-unquote Web3 is very vast and immense and a lot of opportunity there. One of the things, though, that we've noticed is that the user experience for Web3 has really been forgotten about for the last year and a half or two years. Some of the recent investments that we've made have been focused on things as simple as off-ramping. There's been a few big companies, MoonPay and Ramp, for instance, that have focused on the on-ramping experience, getting new users into digital assets, into the ecosystems of Web3. But what happens is, well, if I want to off-ramp, potentially, yes, I want to use the assets that I have now put into this platform and use them for other purposes, that experience has been arduous. It's been typically a 10, 12, 13-step process. And for those that are more crypto-native, that's fine. But for those that are not as crypto-native, that's not a great experience. In our day and age, I've said this for years, in our day and age, we are the on-demand society. It has to be one or two clicks and that's it. Yeah, I I don't have time for 10 on ramps. You're right. (laughs) No, no. You know, this has been a big part of us. What we've looked at, we've made two investments here that effectively within two steps, you're off. You can do what you want with it. And we think that that's actually a really important part of the user experience is making it easy and frictionless and enjoyable. The other thing that we recently looked at in terms of Web3 is for those projects that are obviously using tokens as part of their infrastructure, When founders and projects distribute those tokens, having visibility on the investors that actually hold them, what are they doing with them? Are they immediately, and this is a terminology we use in the space, are they nuking them when there's a token generation event? Meaning, are they getting their their initial allocation, which is sometimes 5 or 10%, and are they immediately selling them the market to make a, Mm -hmm. a profit? That is really 
in my opinion, and part of my language, crappy behavior. And we really are. You can say crappy on our show. That. We allow that one. Yeah, okay. we allow swears. <laughs> okay. That, 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 that's crappy behavior. And it's something that we are ardent, you know, really just don't believe in. And so what we've uh, recently invested in, what we're defining, and again, using Web2 kind of parallels, the Carta of Web3 a solution that kind of interoperates with smart contracts and with wallets so that the founder has the ability to really in real time see the kind of activities that the holders are used are doing. Are they immediately selling down? Are they holding them? And for the investor, what does my vesting schedule look like? What does my portfolio look like? These are simple things that don't sound overly sexy and exciting I can get, but I've been really thinking about what is needed for the next phase of growth. And I've spent a lot of time, again, looking at the history of innovation, looking at the history of growth of sectors. And two things came up to me right away. As a former resident of New York City, the subway system is something that you use day in, day out. You take it from home to work, back and forth, and you're hopefully without, you know, obviously interruption, you're there within a few minutes. Back in 1904, though, in the early 1900s, that whole system wasn't even around. They had to basically create it from scratch. They didn't know how to, you know, necessarily dig ditches under buildings and pipes and all the infrastructure that was there. They had to do it basically from scratch. So without the subway system today, New York City would probably not be operating the way it does. The other thing that's interesting too is for transatlantic communication, the transatlantic cable system tried several times, about three or four or five times actually, and it failed and it broke and it had issues, but eventually they got it right. And then we were able to start to communicate between the continents seamlessly and quickly. These were just two innovations that happened through a lot of, as I said, not a lot of sexiness to it, not Mm -hmm. a lot of hype to it. But these two things made communication and transport immensely easy for all of us to take advantage of. Well, cutting into that a little bit, I mean, there's been this big conversation about like funding public goods. Terra can get $40 billion into its ecosystem, but maybe something that's like for the good of the Ethereum network that all these projects are based around can raise like a $5 million seed round with the Ethereum Foundation contributing the bulk to it. Do you feel like VCs need to be allocating more of their funds to actually things that maybe aren't purely return generating, but are just kind of for the good of the network? That's a tough question. And it's, <laughs> I, know, I know it runs counter to the LP model, but it's yeah. it's what like SBF was talking about in that recent interview where he's like, yep. you know, I don't have to worry about like, is it going to make me a lot of money, but is it going to lose me a lot of money? Yep. Right. I would say that as for us, and we know talking to a lot of our, our peers right now, many of our peers are becoming much more focused on revenue generation. How do you actually potentially make some money from this? How do you potentially become more cash flow positive? How do you ensure that you have enough runway for the next few years, depending on how long this lasts? Public goods definitely serve a purpose, whether it's donations, whether it's things that might not have a revenue generating proposal at the moment in time right now. That is obviously up to the VC themselves. When you come up with a portfolio target and strategy and allocation schema, that could be a part of it. One of the things that we're currently looking for within some of the allocations that we're looking for is that we're looking for more sustainability. That may be more of a public good. There may not be, quote unquote, revenue generation from it, but to support new L1s or L2s that are using more sustainable models, that are creating ways that are more greenified, that could be very interesting. But again, that could be also denoted potentially as a public good. So we are looking for some of that, but I would say the majority of what we're looking for and what other VCs are looking for right now are really companies and projects that can become more revenue generative and more independent in the near future. Mm-hmm. 
I know we breached a lot of topics in crypto world, and I appreciate you diving into some of this stuff. I mean, your fund is relatively new, and I guess wrapping things up, mm-hmm. there's never been more fresh powder on the table in terms of VCs have huge funds right now. We haven't noticed as many deals kind of coming through the pipeline. It seems like a lot of people are in a little bit of a wait and see period. How do you think the next few months shake out, and when do you think things pick up a little bit again? But when will VCs start actually investing is kind of the question. Yes. I, I think that's a great question. We decided as a team, after some of the issues that happened, as you alluded to with Luna, and then obviously some of the cascading issues, we thought it was appropriate just to take some time just to see what was the effects, the second order effects, the third order effects. I don't want to necessarily be a pilot of a ship in the Atlantic when there's a Cat Cat 5 hurricane coming right at me. I want to make sure that we do the right things. And I think a majority of the other VCs out there, especially digital assets, did the same. However, I have to say that over the last two weeks, we've already invested and funded two projects out there. We've heard candidly, and I think we we talked about this with Jacqueline, that we've heard that there could be some sort of a waiting period for September that some VCs were going to start to have more motivation and more more kind of focus in September going into the end of the year. What we've seen candidly from the investment landscape is that rounds, you know, seed rounds specifically, this time last year we're pricing around 35 to 45 million pre, if not higher. We're seeing the same type of founder and, and as I said, a higher even a better caliber founder who has more experience now that is raising the same seed round at sub 20 million pre. Mm. We have seen a, a significant change in that What we have seen in terms of kind of this wait and see, we have seen deals getting done. They are slower, as you alluded to. The duration back to Q4 of last year and Q1 of this year was typically about two weeks. It was breakneck speed. It was basically you find an opportunity, you immediately, you obviously do your diligence, you write your investment memo, you take it to IC, and you pray to God that you don't miss the window to potentially get into it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Now, you know, we're seeing an elongation of... I'd say instead of two weeks, we're seeing four to five weeks as the time frame. I've heard candidly, I've seen other articles and other reporting out there that VCs are doing more diligence these days. And I think I said this to Jacqueline, I'll say this here. I think that's BS. They should have been doing you know diligence before anyway. Well, they should have. You know, that's <laughs> yes. Hindsight we, is we, 2020, right? Yeah. You know, we we've seen some other memos out there that are fairly minuscule. You know, we typically do a very good body of work and Our investment committee is basically contentious consensus is what I call it. It's basically a war of this is my idea. This is the project that we like. And then basically I have four or five people that are beating my brain to make sure that I still actually believe in this thing. And this thing actually holds water and I haven't gone insane. So I, I think that's really, we haven't changed. That's been our focus. That's been the way that we do things you know, in the prior. The other thing that we did early on was we started to do things more on personality traits. The way that a deal or a project gets into our investment funnel for potential investment is we look at the personality of the founder, uh, the founders. Do they have, obviously, past experience assigned, but if they don't, that's that's equally as fine as well. But what can we gauge from their ability to actually deal with difficulty? These are difficult markets right now. Do we get a sense that they are more introverted or extroverted? Have they been able to already bring people around the table with them that are really fantastic engineers and developers? Have they been able to raise a little bit of money already? So are they completely dependent on us or have they been able to do that already? Is looking at personality something you think differentiates you? Or do you think, you know, kind of across the board, VCs are looking at personality? Because I know early stage, it's, it's hard. You Maybe you don't have as much metrics. Isn't personality sort of a focus anyway? Um, I've heard some of our peers have been surprised that we do that. Interesting. So I'd say, you know, I don't know if it is a 
or it's something that is happening with every other you know VC out there. Um, we thought it was really important because at the end of the day, as you alluded to, it's early. It's early stage. There's only so much that you can do in terms of comps, in terms of relative value, in terms of kind of the proverbial DCF, in terms of looking at the future cash flows, in terms of projections. A lot of it is dependent on, okay, this founder has these characteristics, these abilities. We've had multiple calls with them, and we've gotten to a point where we believe that they actually can succeed because of X, Y, and Z. I think John Doerr was infamous for this back in the day where he would be able to go into a room and basically, I think he picked out Bezos, for instance, and basically was able to see that he just was the type of of leader. What we're looking for today, this is actually the wording of my friend uh, Carlos from Bitcraft, who runs another fund out there, is we're looking for wartime CEOs. We're looking for those that really have the ability to weather very difficult markets because macro tailwinds are definitely there. We have an administration that is trying to redefine what the term recession means because obviously some of the financial data is not looking so good here. <laughs> these are these are difficult times, and so mm-hmm. we need you know wartime CEOs out there who have the stomach and the wherewithal to really do that. So yeah, I think personality is a very large part of what we look at and evaluate. Yeah, well, we'll see if the investors actually do more diligence. I guess we won't really know the long-term effects until a couple of years from now on all of that. But (laughs) yeah, exactly. But it was great having you on, David. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your thoughts. And yeah, hope to chat with you again soon. It was my honor. It was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, David. Take care. Thanks for listening. We'll be back every week with the top crypto news and interviews with experts in the space. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite podcast platform. And subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction, at techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters. You can also follow us at chain underscore reaction on Twitter for the occasional Twitter space about breaking crypto news. We'll see you next week. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening.